Everyone thinks they know what it means to be woke, whether they're proudly declaring it or angrily attacking it. But writer, political entrepreneur and psychosocial therapist Indra Adnan has written a comprehensive and necessary account of waking up to the realities of climate crisis, social breakdown and personal agency, which implicates us all. In the internet era, no one escapes the global revolution of learning, connecting and mobilising and its entangled consequences. This reality demands a political response. But our current politics, led by divisive parties and their exhausted ideologies, are clearly broken and dysfunctional. Only 2% of the UK electorate think it's worth the time or money to join a political party. How do we put the full spectrum of a consciously awakening humanity at the heart of society, economy and politics? As social bonds fray and the planet burns, a politics of waking up is more urgently required than ever. Informed by decades of public advocacy, transformative work with both local and global communities, as well as her lifelong commitment to self-development, the politics of waking up lays out Indra's practical, beautiful and urgent ways to redesign politics for an era of people power. Drawing on the last five years of political entrepreneurship as co-initiator of the Alternative UK, Indra shares a compelling vision of a fractal politics with an emphasis on new patterns of behaviour and viable prototypes of social progress that can be copied and replicated everywhere. The politics of waking up presents a coherent, radical and profoundly feminine alternative to our current socio-political turbulence, one that is there for the taking. Welcome, Indra. How are you today? I'm really good. I'm really good. How are you? It's sunny outside. How, who could complain? I know it's tempting to be there, but I'm super looking forward to this conversation. I think one of the things that I was thinking, and I try and be really honest in every one of these episodes, is politics is actually something that I would say is like a weak spot for me in terms of confidence. And it's really important to me that every conversation that we have in this podcast is a chance for us all to learn something new and be open to new ways of doing things. But I hope that in this conversation, we can kind of make it as inclusive as possible and ensure that anybody who is sort of tiptoeing at the edges of understanding politics can find it accessible. And I think what I've loved about reading the transcript of your book, which I've been really fortunate to see, is that it is so accessible. And is that something that you've kind of intended to do? Oh, absolutely. You got right to the heart of the problem straight away there. I mean, when we knew for sure that we needed a different kind of politics. One of the first things that we were addressing was that, you know, only 2% of people are members of political parties, which means that only 2% of people somehow are attracted to the idea of politics or want to be part of that conversation. And, you know, there's a real danger in that, obviously, because that means the whole discourse around politics is coming from a very small group of people. So the opposite of what you said there, it's not, in fact, an inclusive culture at all. And that's supposed to be the mechanism for bringing diversity and bringing inclusion. So, you know, it, it really is self-defeating at the moment. And 
what we've been doing over the last five years at The Alternative is just asking the simple question, if politics is broken, what's the alternative? And that starts with a conversation like this. Oh, I love that. And I do really love the alternative. And, you know, we're all overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that's coming into our inbox. But if people haven't read it, it is really diverse, actually, in the topics that are covered in it. And it's a real gateway to kind of stepping out of your own echo chamber, I think. So I really enjoy it. And I, having run my own business, I could imagine it's been a real labour of work. What's that journey been like for you creating? Do you call it a publication or what, what, how would you describe it? Well, you know, do we even have a word to describe what it is that we're trying to create now? We described it the other day for ourselves as we're trying to envisage, you know, or, or create a vision of a new planet that we can all occupy together. You know, it's like, how does it exist in our minds, this place where we can go and feel that we have some agency and that as we're doing that, we are actually, in fact, changing the story about ourselves and the story about our future. It works on many different levels. But just from the point of view of the journey, I was part of a political think tank for about five years. But before that, you know, I didn't really want to get involved in politics. I worked in the field of the arts for the first part of my career. And then I moved into the world of conflict transformation because that really seemed to me to be important you know how do we change conflict and then I discovered this term soft power which maybe we'll get to a bit later on but it's really talking about the power of story and the power of narrative to really create outcomes for people so all of this was very much living in a live human world and I was still looking at political parties and thinking they have all the power they're making the decisions they're spending the money so I need to step up and get involved in politics. So I was involved in a think tank, a political think tank for for five years. And I was just constantly frustrated because none of the stuff that I wanted to bring into the conversation was really welcome in that conversation. One of the core things was at the heart of politics is this concept of a human being as mostly material, you know, needing a roof over the head and food in the stomach and a tax cut. But politics never really saw the full, what I call biopsychosocial spiritual entity that is a human being. And so I sat frustrated really on the margins of political activity and change. I did stand to be an MP at one point, just thought I've got to put myself to the test here. But it was like a near-death experience, actually. It was, <laughs> it, was such a, it was such a dull and disconnected and alienating process. That even though I had great conversations on the doorstep, you know, I could not somehow fit into the party politics and be the person I was required to be to succeed. But the thing that really made me jump ship from all of that was when I was in Denmark, I was being hosted by a political party called The Alternative. And I met the founder some time back and we just really got on and I knew he was aiming for something similar to what I wanted and right in the middle of a political festival we were taking part in Joe Cox was murdered and it was it was such a, an illustration of the dysfunctionality of our politics how it works to divide people against each other often on very flimsy pretexts you know so you know now we had remainers versus leavers 
you know, a question that most people didn't think about, you know, in the course of their lives now being so severely divided against each other that families had fallen out over this issue and now somebody had been murdered in her own constituency by somebody crazed by this division. I thought that's it, you know, I've got to jump ship. We need an alternative. And, you know, I've heard the term divisive politics and I've read about polarisation and like you say, that's almost become even more part of the narrative since the Brexit leave versus remain. There was a, a word in your subtext of your book, which was, you said, the fractal age. I mean, I love an age. <laughs> I, get, I, get really, I get really excited when something's called an age, because I guess, you know, so much is quite transient, I guess. And if someone's willing to put a kind of hoop around something and say this is an age, then it means that it's important. So I just wondered, what is the fractal age? Yeah, great. Another good, great, you know, key question. So I want to take you a little step back to explain what that is. So for over 20 years, we've been in a revolution of kinds. And what I mean by that is ever since the birth of the internet, we've had a very different experience of being alive on this planet. And even though it's uneven all over the world, anyone with a mobile phone can get access to this immense wealth of information that we never had access to before. So on the one hand, we can find out so much about almost anything we want to inquire into. At the same time, we've had the ability to connect to each other. So we can meet in groups, we can meet in small movements, we can mobilize, we can find the love of our life. You know, there's so many ways for us to connect now. And then on top of that, we're looking at ourselves in a completely different way. So, you know, whether you're taking a selfie and putting yourself on the map, you know, now my face is out there in the public space, or whether you're performing a new idea, much like you're doing and I'm doing, we're grouping things and we're telling a new story about what's possible for all of us. All of this has been happening for 20 years and it's an immense, you know, step up and we're now in this massive base of infinite possibility, but it is chaotic and it is bruising and there is polarization and it's very hard to get any traction. So you might have the key to the world's problems that you've worked out for yourself somewhere under your own Bodhi tree, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, but you wouldn't be able to sell that on the internet because, you know, thousands of people would either agree or disagree with you or ridicule mm. you or you simply wouldn't be seen it's just too big out there so what people have been doing more and more is organizing themselves in small groups what we call micro solidarities just enough people around you to sort of give you a sense that you're engaging with the whole system but in a microcosm of that system so it might happen for example in a place that you live that you've moved into a relationship with somebody who's working on food, somebody working on energy, somebody looking at self-development, somebody looking at creative possibilities. And, you, you know, you might have a small group of people really creating good relationships with each other. And that's what we call fractal. It's like you're mirroring the bigger system, but in a very small entity that somehow helps you to mimic the pattern of the bigger change. And that microcosm of the macrocosm is what we call a fractal entity, something that, you know, is a small version of the whole system. That gives you a sense of traction because the dynamics between the different pieces of that small group of people 
actually mirrors the bigger level dynamics. And you get a sense of you can learn through this smaller system. And that's happening all over the world. What we describe as citizens action networks, which could be anything from COVID mutual aid group, for example, that's organized on WhatsApp, Mm -hmm. um, is a fractal system because it's responding to the crisis and it's taking care of many, many, many aspects of what is needed for the people in your neighborhood to be able Mm. to survive this moment. Or transition towns, you might have heard of transition towns, you know, where a whole town decides it's going to become a green town and then links up all the bits of that town that would help it to do so, you know, bits of business, bits of the economy, bits of the education system. They sort of move into a relationship with each other and then they become pretty strong as a relationship that's fractal oh gosh there's so much in that and I think that's one of the things that I you know I've loved in the few conversations we've had prior to this is that you could take any one word like micro solidarity and do an entire podcast around (laughs) it and I think that's the art of you and other people that I meet who are edge thinkers actually because it is almost playing in lots of different sort of sandboxes and then mixing the sand together to find something new. But one of the things that I find really interesting about the Warrior Women Network, so we're a hundred and growing, what we call pioneering women who are looking at the current system. I kind of hate the word system, but for the sake Mm. of this, looking at the current system and trying to design a new system for whether that's, you know, food waste or whether or not that's seeing microaggressions at work and trying to find a way to stop those things happening or to redesign that system. And I've been thinking a lot lately around the growth of these communities because current thinking is very much in order to kind of have impact, you know, you scale it. So we'd need to be 100,000 warrior women around the world. But within that micro solidarity, I'm seeing so much connection and so much collaboration happening. And it's almost like we're at a capacity, which is we're a sort of networks of networks and we're Mm. like a node that links to others. So I'm going to take it back to the power that you were talking about with trying to be an MP, trying to work within that system and recognising that a lot of the decision-making for humanity is still happening in a very kind of hierarchical way. My question, I suppose, is what do these micro-communities, which are to some extent hidden from the eyes, as an example, in our community, we have what we call honest conversations about things like money and menopause and motherhood. We don't publish any of those conversations. The learning and the exchanges happen within those forums and they allow us to sense make, like you're saying, you're not looking to see, well, who else says that? is right it's just within that forum but I wonder what does that mean for power and politics when we become more invisible it's the biggest question only because there's a lot to say in response to it but it's also the biggest opportunity I've got no doubt about that and if you think again from a developmental point of view what has been happening not just over these last 20 years actually but let's say over the past century is that the biggest shift in anyone's world, really, has been how women have moved into the public space. For a large part of that time, women have been moving into a public space designed by men. So they've been obliged to not only 
work within certain strictures, occupy the buildings and the institutions that were already designed, but also to behave like men in, in many cases. And it's very often been the case that women haven't bought that much change as they might because they've been obliged to take on the culture and you know, and structures of the, the thing that the men designed. But we're sort of moving out of that. And the internet has really accelerated that because what the internet has brought is more what I would describe a soft power rather than a hard power. A hard power is about guns and money. You know, it's what can be mm-hmm. achieved through a certain kind of coercion. With money, you can make people do things. With guns, you know, with the military, you can force outcomes. Mm-hmm. Soft power is more describing the power of story or describing the power of influence. And with the internet, this has proved to be even more powerful than hard power. You know, you could look at anything, really. The success of Trump, how was that achieved? Populism is nothing but a series of stories that capture the mind of people and trigger some sort of emotion and get them to respond in a certain way. That's not hard power, that's soft power. Or even at another extreme, you could look at something like ISIS and think, how did they manage to be so dominant as a tiny group of terrorists actually operating somewhere far away from us caused us to change our whole foreign policy? You know, mm. So the power of story is been massively amplified over the last 20 years. And that has worked for women as well. So even though we can't see ourselves in politics, we can certainly see ourselves in the public sphere. What's happened with Facebook, what's happened with popular entertainment, what's happened with commerce, it's become quite feminine, actually. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of pursuit of beauty. There's a lot of naturalization. There's a lot of much more human elements in our public sphere than ever were before. The question is, you know, how do we leverage that? How do we help that affect the hard power? How does our soft power begin to affect the way the hard power is used? And that's why I'm designing not simply a new political party or a new political ideology. I'm trying to design a new political system whereby what's happening at community level, you know, or what's happening between people, or you might even say between families, the private conversations that you're describing there, Carla, you know, have to have their own ability to have more influence, you know, have more impact, help us make better decisions, Mm -hmm. you know, and this for me has to be protected in some way. If you simply grow it, as a movement, for example, then the political parties or the political party system will just try to take it over. This is happening a lot right now where during COVID, a lot of women in particular created these mutual aid groups, started to link up neighborhoods. And now the council wants to either take them over or sort of tell them how to behave and what to do. And that's kind of inevitable because we need you know, funds and we need support. But it does this leeching away of the actual power that is being generated in this space. What I'm trying to help us imagine is that we could be a parallel system. 
Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I have to say, without compromise, this would be driven by women moving into their power because women have always had power in their communities and they've always had power in their homes. They're very strong in the private space or you might say the yin space, right? But it's time for us to be a bit more yang. We need to say, without us becoming much more visible, you know, being a force of our own with, you know, including the men. I'm not saying we would exclude the men in any way, but we would probably be the conveners and the hosts because we're trying to hold that soft power aspect of it strongly all the way up to national level and then beyond to the international level. So I think this is possible and it would be achieved by mostly connecting these fractals, these, you know, citizens action networks, I call them, to each other and helping them to find their own source of uh, education, source of you know mutual support, and even to create an economy from within that, like a good entrepreneur you know can. That creates something that is parallel to the current party political system, with the intention entirely of being in good partnership with the current political system. But unless this parallel stream you know, is constituted in some way, it's going to keep falling foul of the fact that the whole of history was designed by men. So two questions to that. The first one is, how do you grow this kind of parallel, different thinking, I suppose, or these different networks, and not get to the point where, and it's okay, you don't, you don't have to know the answer to every question in the entire world. But unfortunately, I do think that you know a lot of them. Where is the breaking point where, you know, you can keep going but not be leached on and how can you do that I mean I just I feel like it's wishful thinking and and maybe that's the pessimist that I can sometimes fall mm. into where it's almost like we do need to believe that the political parties can see power as not a, a zero you know a zero-sum game oh god we mm. talk about power so much in our network it's mm. trying to define it do we hate the word you know what different types are there but, you know, you have to kind of get them to accept it as adding value to what they're already doing, improving it. And mm. there's so many micro steps in that. It feels like you almost need a conductor. So I, I'm definitely a convener. That's what I do. I convene yeah. different worlds together. I think that's really important. I connect different worlds and I create space for them. But it feels like we also need a conductor which can see the points to see those moments where you could be leached on and to avoid those twists mm. and turns is that oh, no, what absolutely. are those points and is yeah. that your role funnily enough you've just given me a word that I haven't used much but I can see exactly the wisdom of that word I would say that we need to create the conductor role not the conductor person conducting is a very important part of the relationship between a convener or let's say a designer to some extent and the the book I, I would refer you to is Frederick Laloux's Reinventing Organizations where he describes a fantastic or a number of fantastic developments in the way that organizations are growing now for the first time so he talks, for example, about how the nursing industry was transformed in Holland. So in the Dutch you know, version of the NHS, the state-owned system, they were failing in pretty much the same way as we are failing in the UK. 
you know, nurses were having to visit people all over the community, but they were clocking in and clocking out and people never really left the system. It just became this massive care system, overburdened and not having very much success, but with thousands of care workers out there. And what the founder of this organization called Burtsorg, which just means neighborhoods, actually, what he decided was that it was too overly controlled from the top. What needs to happen is that the nurses in any given neighborhood or small town should be able to organize themselves and that they can decide who needs more time, who needs less time, you know, whether or not somebody needs to be taken to the hospital or whether or not they just need to visit their family. In other words, they need to move into a relationship with their patients, Mm. which which is something that just wasn't being allowed to happen in this clocking on, clocking off system. So he humanized the system and trusted the nurses to sort themselves out. It's designing the conditions in which people can self-organize. That's that's a real shift in the way that we can work together with people. And mm-hmm. I feel that right now, this idea of citizens action networks, you know, we at The Alternative, we might have a, an ideal of what a great can is. And we, we are in fact prototyping citizens action networks in different parts of the country but you know at the same time as we're doing that thousands of others are self-organizing cans are not something we invented they are what happens when people start to self-organize and that that's a new kind of politics now you you want to know how we can stop that being that energy being leached into the current system and right at the bottom of that pyramid is the local councils let's say parish level or you know small town level where at the moment people who are very involved in community organizing are moving into councils with the explicit intention of making it a participatory experience so that shift was initiated in Froome in Somerset. Yes, which is actually where I'm from, and I know a lot about that. Right, right, right. So you know flat pack democracy, which is, you know, it's great. It just says, you know, it's as easy as putting together a table. Well, not all IKEA furniture is easy to put together, but um, (laughs) that's the idea. The idea is it's easy to put together. You know, you get a group of people from your local community who care about the community and love them, And, uh, you know, as a group, move into the council. If there's enough of you, you'll take over the council and you'll change the whole rule book immediately. And then you can bring in participatory politics. Now, that is the, the basis, if you like, of a new political system where the community itself is taking on the responsibility at the party political level. It's not the same, you know, as something that starts in Westminster and slowly winds its way down to the bottom and has no power at all. And this word participatory is something that I've learned so much about from the warrior women in the last year. Mm. And it's something that I think defines a lot of the work that the women are doing. So in one warrior women is called Alex Carl. She used to work for British Red Cross and she's founded a platform called Loop, which is about working out the customers of aid actually informing these organisations what they actually need and versus the way around, which is a really good example of these mm. participatory methods. Really helps me to understand power when I hear about self-organisation and participatory decision-making because it feels like the opposite side of control. Mm. And and the, and I think power is often a bit like politics. You know, I think... I'd love someone to listen to this podcast and the other ones that we've done who've never 
heard about this area before and learned something new from it because I think that's a revolution in its own right if we can make things accessible but no I I, I do understand it we've mm. talked a lot about politics and one of the things that I've been really proud of about this podcast so far is that I find that often pioneering women, the focus of the podcast is always about the work for very good reasons. And I do think that we need to talk about women as pioneers and we need to focus on those works. But often we miss the journey, we miss the humanity, we miss the story and what made what what led you to this work because um, it is an, unu- an unusual path, I guess. I love the fact you call yourself a political entrepreneur, for example. And I also really like that I read an article where you were describing what you did and it started off with just such a brilliant paragraph. I haven't got it written it down, but it basically said, well, what part of me do you want me to introduce? Should I introduce the mother? Should I introduce the mm. entrepreneur? And I just think that that really feeds back to exactly what you were saying at the start about we know we can't just see people as you know who need waste collection and tax cuts we need to see the whole human so I hope that you will be open enough for us talking about Indra the whole human in Mm. in this journey for the work you've done because you know every warrior woman who is in our network she has a sort of story to tell about well why are you trying to change things and that's I guess the question I have for you which is what about your personal experience has led you to this work. Yeah, abs- absolutely. If I if I think about who what made me who I am, my father's Indonesian, hence the name Indra, and my mother's Dutch, and my father is Muslim, my mother is a Catholic. I was brought up in a family that was, you, you know, really made me think of myself as a world citizen, absolutely. rather than citizens of a nation. Of a, of a nation. And when we moved to Britain, that was quite a challenge f- for us to be part of a or to be invited into a British identity which didn't really recognise most of what made me me or made my family my family. But one one of the things that we had to do when we moved to, to England was to leave my brother behind in Holland because he was already of an age where he wanted to finish his education and so he stayed with my aunt and we settled down here in the UK. But at the age of 11, one night, you know, we received a phone call and my brother had been... Uh, involved in a car accident and I remember I was at a conference school and I was quite a devout well at least I was a practicing Christian at the time and I remember you know I was an 11 year old girl and I prayed to God the whole night you know please let my brother survive pleading for my brother's life and you know it came to the morning and sadly he hadn't survived and it was the beginning of the complete shattering of my family my mother she just she sort of disappeared almost immediately but in the next six years while I was a teenager she had seven brothers and sisters six of them died of cancer so it was death after death after death after death when I was a teenager and of the most shattering kind and I completely lost my parents as they struggled to come to terms with everything they had to while trying to bring up three children in a country that they barely could speak the language. And if I look back at that period of my life now, I think what I started to search for, you know, in a very childish way to start with, but then ever more profoundly is, you know, where is my power? What control do I have over my life? You know, what is agency? 
what meaningful thing can I do that makes any difference? Or am I just, you know, on the receiving end of everything? And when I was in my 20s, I went to Indonesia to try and find my roots. And it was there, in fact, that I met Buddhism for the first time. And that fit in very well with the thing that I'd created for myself. And I realized there was already a whole world religion and a huge amount of support for me to see this world in this way. And, you know, this was really about the interconnectedness of all life and death. And I sort of rediscovered my lost brother and lost aunts and uncles. I I reconnected with them through my practice of Buddhism and found a sort of new way of being in the world. You know, and cut a long story short, you know, the Buddhism that I was part of was was a very active, you know, social kind of Buddhism, an activist Buddhism, if you like. And there was a worldwide movement dedicated to culture and education and peace. And I became part of that for about 15 years. And that's what led me eventually into politics. So that's a bit of a story. But yeah, that eventually led to me wanting to understand power better, really understanding the need for some sort of control over your life. Also, the belief that whatever it is that you can imagine in your mind will take shape, can take shape in the world in front of you. Do you feel like a powerful person? I think that's an interesting question to ask you because you are quite a predominant figure, um, you are well known. You are definitely hugely respected across lots of different areas. I definitely feel privileged to know you. Do you feel that this journey of your self development and being somebody who is investigating new ways forward, have you reached a place now where you feel you have some answers, you have some solutions, and you feel more powerful? Yeah, that. I mean, that. You know, I have to. I actually was smiling. You know, broadly when you were saying that you, you know, that you see me in a certain way. You know, you can imagine I don't see myself that way. You know, I've been living in a Zoom room for a year and a half. <laughs> you know, I just look at myself and think, you know, <laughs> it's another day in the Zoom room. I'm quite sure that because of soft power and the power of the media, that you know, I'm having an influence in some ways. But I can I can tell you categorically, the only time that I feel a sense of growing agency is when I'm working with others and linking what I do to what they're doing. That's the moment that I feel something is shifting. And, and when I say, you know, my book is called The Politics of Waking Up because, you know, for me, it's about we're in an era of people waking up to their own power. You know, everybody has power that they're not using at the moment and it's really how we link up with each other that that starts to have an impact so yes my experience of being more grounded um, and certainly over this past year and a half during covid i've been able to make a lot more connections because people are so ready to be on zoom literally get into these rooms with each other that things have moved faster actually in the world of soft power and we've moved from being something that was really looking mostly at devon and somerset (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and maybe um, stoke to now looking at worldwide networks of cans you know we were speaking to people in south africa you know in mexico in Portugal, in the Middle East, these networks are appearing everywhere. And that's what makes me feel stronger and excited being connected to people. So yeah, it doesn't feel that the way that I imagined 
I might feel when I was much younger and I thought being a politician would make you feel personally powerful. I'll be honest with you, it doesn't feel like that at all. I don't feel personally powerful, but I feel very connected. And the more connected I feel, the more agency I'm experiencing. So that's maybe just another version of the same thing. I mean, isn't that what we're aiming for, though? Isn't that just what you've just said then, is that people don't feel personally powerful? Mm. That's the problem, I think. And that's that if people are aiming to move into politics, and I would imagine a lot of people are, especially schooled in a certain way, to want to feel that personal power. I would love, you know, it would be so interesting, wouldn't it, to do this kind of interview with somebody who has stepped out of politics and moved past that state and become Mm. more connected and say, you know, do you feel more powerful now? But I think that is the mm. that is the movement. It's it's power through connectedness, mm. through you know, through organising, through participation. I did, you know, I did yeah. read the transcript that you sent over for your book, and um, I know it's going to be released in June this year, which is really exciting. To the point we've just been talking about, you said in, and what really struck me, I guess, was that you said, well, you already have the answers, the resources and the capabilities if we wake up to them. Mm. And that feels, I don't know how I feel about that. It's all, it makes me feel like there's a lock somewhere and I've got a key, but I don't know which lock I'm supposed to, you know, use that key. And Because there is a sense, I definitely feel that we're still looking for answers. We're still looking for the solutions. And once we know them, we'll act on them. But you're saying they're already there. And so what... What do we need to do to wake up to these? I think it's it's developmental meaning, you know, the more that we invest in something, the more we see. It's literally like pennies dropping. Mm. You know, we, we, we've all experienced that. You know, if you, if, you, if you look back at your teenage life, for example, you know, and, and you were given a chance to advise your teenage self, you know, you, you would see so much more than that teenager was able to see. Right. So, so that's just the mundane part of it. You know, as, as we mature, we see the system, we see why things are the way they are, we see opportunities differently. So, you know, alongside that is the technical capability to do things that we never could before. So, you know, whereas maybe once upon a time, we could imagine in our heads, you know, lots of small communities being gathered or, you know, moving into connection with each other in a sort of fractal pattern, we could imagine it. It's, now it's possible to do. You know, so I wouldn't say that the big shift is innovation per se. The big shift is ourselves looking at things differently or being prepared to look at them differently. Obviously, we have got, you know, there's a huge gap in the fight for equality. And there's definitely, I mean, obviously running, you know, self-identifying, you know, female network. We talk about gender equality a lot, but it's often missed that, listening to the ideas of women involving women isn't just about women benefiting it has been proven by a number of organizations who've done research into it that actually having women involved can change everything for men and women children and obviously animals and the planet but we obviously have to be involved for that to happen what i normally say to people is invest you know know where you're investing your time and your energy uh, but i can hardly say that to you because you're really already doing that you know you are investing in not just the women but the warrior women you know you're on the edge and you want to bring out the best and the most energetic of women i'm involved in an organization called femq i don't know if you've come across this yet no. but it's like a it's a global network of women 
who are trying to be able to articulate better what is a feminine intelligence. In other words, what is it that women particularly bring to, you know, to the public space that wasn't there before, you know, before that they had the chance to be there? Because unless it's spoken, you know, articulated, visible, it's difficult to redesign the public space. Absolutely. Um, you know, so that's what we're doing. So in FemQ, there are, you know, more than 100 absolute, you know, feminine pioneers doing things like I'm doing, you know, like I'm creating a more feminine politics. They're creating feminine businesses or feminine economics. You know, if you think about someone like Kate Rayworth with Donut Economics mm. or all the next, all the new economic systems, you know, circular economy, regenerative economy, donut economy, these are all women, you know, and we are building this parallel system you know, which includes the whole of the community. So including the men in that. But we, we have to invest and we have to build or it will never become visible. If we keep protesting, if we use most of our energy on just trying to correct the old system, time is short. Mm. You know, this is the, for me, it's the Buckminster Fuller thing. Don't, don't spend too much time fixing the old one. Build the new one that makes the old one obsolete. Mm. And I think that's what we're doing. Yeah, Absolutely. And getting a new vision out there to some extent. And the whole reason why I started this podcast was because I do see visibility as really important and getting the stories out there of every woman, you know, every intersectional woman that we're interviewing on this, the work they're doing, we need to make sure that we are owning that work. If we don't attribute women to to being behind this work, that it can get equally lost in the narrative. So I think I really do believe that this podcast in its own right is a form of activism because it's focusing on pioneering women and saying actually so much of the narrative out there is focused on what women can't do. And I say this in the trailer, you know, women struggle to get investment, women fail to balance mothers and work. This kind of narrative actually, well, there's a lot of things that we can't do, you know, but they're not really because we can't do them. (laughs) We're being stopped from doing those things, but actually we're doing it anyway. So it's encouraging. It's 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 really amazing to hear about your work and others' work. So in in this space that you are in, political entrepreneurship, shall we call it? Which mm. one again? Who else? You know, which other women are doing interesting work in this space that that we should know about, follow, and support? So there's different people in different parts of the system. Ellen MacArthur and Kate Rayworth are doing incredibly important economy work. There's Karen Downs and Scylla Elworthy, you might know already, doing the FemQ work. There aren't many political entrepreneurs per se. The person that I would single out would be Kleiner Jordan, who runs Make Votes Matter. Make Votes Matter is the best attempt that I can see at trying to fix the old political system by getting us to move from first-past-the-post system of voting to proportional voting, which would make a lot of difference and give us all a chance to make more impact politically every four years, if we're interested in doing so. So that's quite quite a number of them. But there's not, there's not many women like myself who are designing a new political system, but I'm depending on, I could not do any of the work without you know all the work going on in communities 
Isabel Carlyle is an incredibly important actor. In my view, she's working in the bioregion of Devon, looking at transformation through the bioregional lens, working on many systems levels. And I just want to tell you a little story that might just to, just to sort of finish that off, which is that when somebody asks, you know, is it true that women would have done things differently? And then they go back, everybody tends to go back then to hunters and gatherers and ask, could we make a case that if women were you know, held equally in esteem that anything would be different. So when I did the research, it turns out that at the time of hunters and gatherers, women had as much say for decision making as the men. And at that point, the tribes that used to move around together were always open. So the women were always the ones that guaranteed that the tribe would stay open. And anybody coming to join would be allowed to join. And that way, the tribe was always becoming more and more diverse because that was what the women held possibility for. It was only when we moved into the agriculture era, you know, the, the new, new ways of organizing, that the idea that we should keep things carefully controlled and in the ownership of families and with men leading in a new way, that the men were more concerned with protecting their families and slowly systems and communities started to close down and slowly move into what we now understand to be the making of elites and privileged systems that we've had since then. But, you know, the action of women is to keep things open and diverse and whole Another person I want to bring in is Karen O'Brien, who wrote a book called You Matter More Than You Think. Make a note of her name for sure, mm. because what she shows us is that this kind of way of behaving, particularly amongst women, is what will cause what she calls quantum social shift. She sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, get her for your podcast. She's a good colleague of mine. So okay. quantum social shift arises from communities being open and everything moving into relationship. So relationship is the key. That's really the core of what women do, is bringing things into relationship, and that causes quantum social shift. Thank you. Thank you so much. So how can people find you? What is the URL for The Alternative? Thealternative.org.uk. So www.thealternative.org.uk. Okay, great. Thank you very much, and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thanks so much, Carla. It's a, it a delight to talk to you. Thank you. I'm Carla Morales-Lee, and you've been listening to the Warrior Women podcast, which was produced by the amazing women at Birdline Media. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please click subscribe, because in the next episode, I'm meeting Dr. Charlotte Webb, co-founder of Feminist Internet who's leading the charge in making the internet a more inclusive space for women, the LGBTQ community and other marginalized groups. Described as a deviant academic, she's changing the narrative around how we design and use technology. This is our first series. So if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate you rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing it. The Warrior Women Network is a global network of pioneering intersectional women. The best companies in the world are transforming the way they work to be better for people and planet. We offer ways for organisations to learn how to be a force for change from the women already leading it. If you'd like to know more, go to warriorwomennetwork.com for more information. Thank you so much for listening.